according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, our beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, one more time, for the last time, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. I am going to miss this study. We've done 152. Today makes 153. And I wanted to start over. Because 10 times per chapter was way too fast. This, uh, this should be about a 20-year series. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he did Romans over 20 years. And uh, 20 years to do 16 chapters in Romans. And uh, when he finished, uh, I've heard the story different ways, but he was tempted to move on to uh, Hebrews and uh, spend 20 years in Hebrews, but he didn't. He actually started over and did Romans a second time for another 20 years. And, uh, and I have, you might have it in your library as well as a four-volume set, Donald Gray Barnhouse on, on, uh, on Romans. And uh, anyway, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of detailed study that, uh, that Christians used to dig into all those years ago and still do in churches like this one and so forth. But we, uh, that's kind of the pace we do on the Colossians hour for Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Uh, this 11 o'clock service is more of a big picture type hour. And so 10... Uh, Ten Sundays per uh, per chapter is uh, is right there. By the way, keep that in prayer because two weeks from today is when we're going to start Genesis, and I'm I'm um, curious about what kind of pace we're going to keep because we only have 67 Sundays between um, the day we start Genesis and when I'm going to put it on hold for our through the Bible series in 2022. So uh, 67 Sundays. How far can we get in Genesis in 67 Sundays? Uh, I'm tempted to be still be in chapter one or two, you know, after 67 Sundays, but that doesn't seem right. Um, can we get through chapter five? Can we get through chapter 10? Can we get through chapter 11? That would be six Sundays per chapter to try to get through chapter 11 uh, before our break, before our through the Bible break. So anyway, pray with me over that. I've been praying over that and I'm excited uh, not only to start Genesis, but then uh, for what we got in the following year. So anyway, that's all before the Lord. Let's open with a word of prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and to humble our hearts before his truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning so thankful for this day, and not only this day, but going back to May of 2017, Father. It's been, it's been an amazing three-year-plus study in this book, and I pray that each member of Austin Bible Church and beyond, Father, that everyone that uh, streams these classes or learns this material, Father, that we'd be impacted for the rest of our lives, that uh, we would never again consider our priesthood uh, in the ways that maybe we used to, that we would have a better appreciation for standing within the Holy of Holies and standing before the throne of grace, a better appreciation for the access that we have in Christ as believer priests of the church age, as Melchizedek believer priests of our royal priesthood. I pray that uh, the full impact of this class uh, continues to bear fruit years and years forever, Father, after we finish the series here today. So thank you for being faithful. Thank you for leading us in truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, Hebrews 13. Now in Hebrews 13, we've got a huge change. In reality, you can take this chapter away and you have 12 chapters in Hebrews that stands alone as a powerful discourse. It uh, stands alone as a, as a uh, expository development of the believer's rest and the believer's priesthood. And uh, everything that, uh, that, that is contained in those 12 chapters stands on its own. It does not need this 13th chapter. But when, when the author wrapped up that powerful discourse, he then attached to the end of it a, uh, a personal word, if you will. And these are more uh, intimate, more direct, more involved between the author and his team and the recipients, wh- whomever they may have been, uh, and so forth. So you might notice, just uh, as we start here, the powerful, um, even before I start with Hebrews 13, just remember how the book began. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in the last of these days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the being, the exact radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And those four verses start off the book of of, uh, Hebrews in a way that's unlike any other New Testament book, unlike any of the Pauline correspondence, unlike even Romans. We think of Romans as the pinnacle of Pauline theology, and it is. It is is a marvelous development of of Pauline theology. Uh, Hebrews actually goes beyond Paul. Hebrews presents this marvelous priesthood that we have in Christ, and it starts by celebrating that he has a finished work on the cross, he ascended to glory, and he took his seat. And that sets the stage for the rest of the book. We can have rest because our Savior has taken his seat. We have priestly access because our Savior has taken his seat. Everything we do in the church age is centered on the session of Jesus Christ. By the way, we're going to have this coming up. This is the, the, the theology of Colossians chapter 3, which we just started. That's why we keep our focus on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the session of Jesus Christ, what he does now, what he's been doing since the day he ascended as the apostle and high priest of our confession is the basis of this book. And so it starts us here in chapter 1 and it takes us all the way through to the end of chapter 12. Pro tip, if you're using Logos, just type in an impossibly high verse like Hebrews 12, 500, okay? And I don't know how many verses there are in Hebrews chapter 12, but I suspect it's fewer than 500 verses. And if you tell Logos, take me to Hebrews 12, 500, Logos says, okay, dummy, this is the best I can do uh, here. This is Hebrews 12, 29. All right, so a little pro tip, just throw a big number in there and it will take you to the last. You can do the same thing with chapters too. If you want to look at Hebrews chapter 88, um, it'll say, sorry, pal, Hebrews 13 is the best I can do. And it sends you to the last chapter. Anytime you overshoot the highest number possible. All right. So here's the end of chapter 12. We read the opening of chapter 1 and now the end of chapter 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, but I mean, that's a conclusion right there, right? I mean, you reach that acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And that is the conclusion to the tremendous message that began in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4. And so you have 12 chapters of amazing church age theology, priestly theology, how we function as Melchizedek priests in Christ and how we rest with the Father's rest in the faith rest life that we have in the church age day after day. We don't have an Old Testament Sabbath, which is Saturdays one day a week. We have the church age Sabbath, which is day after day as long as it's called today. Today I have the mental attitude, faith, rest, life that is, uh, that is the marvelous provision of our Father. And so these are the doctrines that we've been studying and learning and they've been blessing us and I pray that they continue to bless us in the years ahead. So as uh, we get past chapter 12, we say, well, wait a minute, there is a 13th chapter, <laughs> okay? And like I say, it's almost like an appendix. It is so different from the first 12 chapters that scholars have frequently been looking for manuscripts that are missing it. Manuscripts that they can demonstrate that, well, maybe originally, uh, maybe originally Hebrews ended after chapter 12, and then this was a chapter that was attached on later. And even theories that it was Paul who attached this chapter, or, or maybe it was Luke who attached this chapter when Paul wrote the first 12. Tons of theories, and all of them are goofy, and, and none of them are true, because every single manuscript we have of Hebrews contains chapter 13. 
So we don't have a manuscript without it, and it's just it's speculation at that point. But we do recognize that it is different. The tone is different. The subject matter is different. It's much more personal. Uh, it's very Pauline as an apostolary uh, type of thing. We realize, oh, there is an audience receiving this. And oh, the, the author has met them before and he's hoping to see them shortly. And in fact, Timothy's going to come with him when they do. And uh, the, the uh, folks from Italy greet you and uh, other personal greetings like that. So it starts with uh, Philadelphia and Philizenia, the love of the brethren and the love of strangers in verses 1 and 2. Let the love of the brethren continue and do not neglect the love of strangers. What's called hospitality to strangers. And so what I'm going to do this hour, and in fact, uh, I won't leave the platform until we're done because as I said, this is our final Sunday to, uh, to deal with this. In two weeks we will be uh, starting Genesis. Um, we're going to take 13 hours that we've done here from classes 135 to 147, and we're going to boil down 13 hours into one session. And uh, you have the notes in your bulletin, so seven points of study I need to get through uh, between now and lunch. So I hope you're hungry. All right. We have Philadelphia and Philizenia, followed by Ah Philargos, not loving money. Philadelphia means loving the brethren like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or any other Philadelphia you want to look at. Philadelphia in, in the Bible, in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Uh, philos, love, and Adelphos, the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we start that with uh, verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. They were doing well. It was already in place. Don't stop it. Don't ever stop it. Keep the love of the brethren as a constant focus of your ministry. And then Philizenia. A little bit of a play on words there uh, with uh, all three of these terms. They all have philo roots. They all have the phileo love component in the compound terms. But philozenia, a xenos is a stranger. And that's why sometimes uh, President Trump gets accused of being xenophobic, for example. And xenophobic starts with an X. Xenophobic uh, is the idea that you don't like strangers. You're afraid of strangers. And so that means uh, anybody that's not from here is a stranger because they're a foreigner, they're from somewhere else. And uh, so it's a word that's used for foreigners and people you don't know. And uh, the opposite of philozenia is, uh, is xenophobia, I guess. It's not really a fear if it's a hatred, but don't get me going on that. The, uh, we have Philadelphia, which can't ever stop, and then philozenia, which must not ever stop. He says, don't neglect do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Matter of fact, it might not even be a human being. God might be testing you with angels. He might have uh, actors going in, you know, like the undercover shoppers that go in to see what kind of the boss will hire these undercover shoppers to go test his employees to make sure that customer service is friendly and cheerful and, and, uh, and all that. And, uh, and so the employees have to be real careful not knowing, you know, I mean, you don't want to be a jerk to anybody, but especially to the spy that the boss sent in to, to grade you and to test you to make sure that you're, you're performing the appropriate customer service duties. And God does that. He does that with angels. And it says some have entertained angels by this. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. We don't get to the third philos compound until down in verse 5. So we've got to skip down a few verses. Verse 5 when it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And so there's no place to have phileo love for argurion. Argurion is a term for silver or money or wealth. So philargoros is the term for be unloving towards money. You're not in a love relationship with money. Keep in mind, this is phileo love in all of these. Phileo love is the rapport love. It's the fellowship love. It's not agape love for any of this. And so uh, what kind of rapport do you have with your brothers and sisters? Well, if I have agape for God and they've got agape for God, then hey, we can have phileo together. We can have phileo rapport love based upon our fellowship with God himself. And then uh, loving of strangers. How long does it take to, to have this kind of rapport with a stranger? Well, when you find out that they're born-again believers in Jesus Christ and you welcome them into your church, you welcome them into your home, and you find out that, man, I feel like I've known you all my life. First time I ever met Fasil John from Pakistan, I thought, man, 
We could be twins because I love this guy. He's, he's, he's a pastor. He's, he loves doctrine. And everything out of his mouth was something could have come out of my mouth. I said, we, we're going to have some fellowship here. And, uh, and it was the very first time I ever met him in, in uh, Linty Jubber's living room, actually. How about that for bringing back the memories? And so uh, loving brothers and loving strangers, but not loving money. Not loving money. Because let's face it, money cannot love you back. Anybody who does love money, it's a one-way street. Money does not love you back. There's no fellowship, there's no rapport, there's no commonality. In fact, uh, if you love money, then you're actually serving money. Money is the slave master and you have just submitted. And uh, it is not capable to have true phileo love with with silver. And so that's verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. That slave relationship of money love has no contentment, no satisfaction, always feels like uh, you need more. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And really, if you have that love of money, you're defying uh, Scripture. You're defying God and his promise to take care of you day by day. So that's how, that's the first of the seven highlights from the chapter I wanted to stress here in this review. Secondly, imitate Bible teaching leaders. Imitate Bible teaching leaders. Submit to them and be persuaded. He says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Let me get verse 7 up here. Remember those who led you, as if you could possibly forget them. How can I forget Ralph Braun? Never on this life. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Remember them and imitate them. And this is why I'm wrapping up Hebrews today and deferring Genesis for two weeks, because I'm going to go visit with Ralph. I'm going to go visit Ralph and and try to encourage him up in Kansas. He's lonely. He was widowed after 63 years of marriage, or close to 63 years. So... um, uh, you'll have Randy Blair teaching next week, and that's no excuse to skip it. You better be here. And uh, I'm going to have him take attendance. (laughs) Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You get down to verse 17, it says, obey your leaders. The verb there is, is patho, to be persuaded by. It's an obedience of persuasion. So as your leaders are teaching doctrine, it comes from Scripture. And as, they're, as they are illustrating it and living it out in their faith, you observe it in action and you imitate and you are persuaded. Submit to them and be persuaded. It says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. And the blessings here, and it's interesting too, if we are correct that the main recipients of this epistle are themselves former Levitical priests, that back before the church age, they were the teachers, they were the leaders, they were the spiritual, uh, you know, the, 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 the top dogs, if you will, of, of Old Testament uh, spirituality. Now, they have leaders over them. Now, they are maybe a minority in a predominantly Gentile church. And now they're starting to realize that their whole life, whereby Jews were always cream of the crop compared to Gentiles, and priests were always cream of the crop compared to other non-priest Jews, okay? You can imagine, that's a, it's a tough humility test for these guys. And, and so functioning in a, in a predominantly Gentile church or even in a mixed church that has leaders that are not them, How hard is it to submit to spiritual leadership when you yourself have been accustomed to being in that leadership role? All in the whole past dispensation, that was your duty. Now in this new dispensation, everybody's a priest. And and people have different gifts and different ministries and different callings. And so the imperative to obey your leaders, uh, every believer must. If Jesus Christ has allotted you to the charge of a shepherd, then you're expected to, to submit to that shepherd. But how hard is it for these guys who used to be the shepherds of Israel? 
And now they've got shepherds over them in the church age. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And I I stress this at the time, I stress this again today, the biblical care of souls. The Greek word psuche is the word for soul. The nous is the word for mind. Plus we have frain and we have other expressions. We have cardia for the heart. We've got pneuma for the spirit. The whole doctrine of human anthropology, by the way, we, we need to have a biblical anthropology that uses biblical terms, not worldly terms. And I think this is intentional on the part of the Freudians and on the part of uh, the secular humanists, why they perverted language the way that they did when they created the field of unbiblical psychology. Why did they insist on using psuche for the soul? instead of noose for the mind. And they, they view themselves as doctors of the mind. And it's not medical, it's sociological, right? It's, it's anti-biblical, philosophical is what it is. And yet they insisted on using psuche instead of noose. That's not an accident. They also, by the way, took the beauty of Zoe life, the Zoe life that we have in Christ, that, uh, we, that you should not perish... But, every, but God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal Zoe. Zoe life is what the believer has. The unbeliever just has bios, bios, biological life. So why did, again, the Darwinist, secular humanist, atheistic, Bible-hating, God-denying scientists of the 19th century why did they insist on taking zoology and assigning it to the beasts? They could have used therion, they could have used the Greek word for beasts, the irrational beasts that are not the rational humanity in the glory of God. But they know, they, they insisted that zoology was going to be our animal studies. And biology is going to be men and plants and animals and everybody. And psychology was going to be the study of the mind as if they have this insight The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In any event, so I get on the soapbox every now and then when uh, these experts with their kind of education tell me that they can uh, care for souls. And I say, well, that's interesting because the Bible tells us that the shepherding of souls is God's design in the church age. And I don't know what 18 centuries of Christians did until Freud came along and Adler and Jung and some of these other guys and, uh, and created this whole endeavor of psychotherapy. How did, how did Christianity make it to the 18th century before psychotherapy was invented? All right. So who gives an account over the care of souls? It's the shepherds. And let, they will give an account. They are accountable and they're accountable to Jesus Christ, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. Got a couple pastor friends I'm praying for right now, and they're shepherding with grief. And uh, I'm proud of them. They, uh, they, they're staying faithful, but they're shepherding with grief. And uh, that's what it's about when you're in, in season and out of season. And uh, the man stays faithful and he shepherds with grief, which means he gets double reward. These people are losing their rewards. And he's going to get his normal shepherding reward plus the reward that they're throwing away because it's unprofitable for them when they uh, force their leaders to shepherd with grief. This would be unprofitable for you. So that's the second highlight out of this chapter. And, uh, and the issues there. Yeah, verse 7 has been, been big, big with me for a long, long time. And, and so thankful. This flock has been so blessed because not only with Ralph Braun, of course, and uh, the pastor that preceded me and trained me and, and uh, introduced me to Sharon and <laughs> all, the, all the good stuff. But also, uh, think about Glenn Carnegie and, and, and the, the fruit that he had and continues to bear here. And, and think about John Miller and think about uh, Hugh Crowder and think about these older men. And, um, and they're getting up there. Think about Emil Schmidt, say, John Eichmann, all these men. And uh, how much longer are we going to have them on this earth? So many are already gone. Colonel Theme's gone. And, and uh, so many more are gone. Already with the Lord in glory. 
So that's the second highlight here from chapter 13. Seeking the city which is to come. This goes well with uh, Colossians 3. Hebrews 13, 14. Seeking the city which is to come. This is why we want to go outside the camp, suffer outside the camp. We're going to identify with our Savior. He suffered outside the camp. They took him outside the gates of Jerusalem, on the road, out there to suffer on full public display. And since uh, Jesus suffered outside the gate, we should be willing. Verse 13 says, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Keeping our attention on the things above, being heavenly focused. Nothing like a heavenly priesthood to keep you heavenly focused. And even back in Hebrews 11, you might remember that um, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay? Our priesthood is one that, that totally operates in the unseen realm, that we operate in the heavenly places, we operate in the spiritual dimension. We are functioning in our priesthood in that invisible realm, right along with the angels and the, the departed saints and our Savior at the right hand of God the Father. It's in the invisible realm. Yes, our bodies are here. And this is where people get off track. This is where ministries, they try to build these huge you know, church empires and whatever with, a, with an impressive building and a, and, a, and a global radio network or internet ministry or some kind of a, a publication thing. And you know what I love more than anything is the fact that Colonel Theme never charged a nickel for any book that he ever sent, for any tape that he ever sent, for anything. It was all, TMP was completely grace basis on everything they ever, and think about the impact that they had and continue to have. Going back to 1950 when, when uh, the 31-year-old young man took that flock. In any event, keep seeking the city which is to come. And it's on the way. We're going to precede it actually because we come with our Savior at the second advent and we'll be here for a thousand years on the millennial earth. The city itself doesn't even arrive until the new heavens and new earth are created after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment as we have studied that out. Abraham was looking for it though back in his day. Remember that? Hebrews 11. Verse 1 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And even Old Testament believers walked by faith. They could see the invisible. Moses could see the invisible. David could see the invisible. Abraham could see the invisible. It's not limited to the church age to, to look for heavenly things. But it's tragically pathetic when we don't since we are the heavenly people <laughs> you know if david did and moses and all the old testament saints did what excuse do we have they weren't even heavenly people they were earthly people that were saved by grace through faith we're a heavenly people how dare we not keep our attention on the things above how pathetic is it for us to be earthly minded preached on that last hour in case you missed it all these, down to verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, a time distance, if you will, as we do as well, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Ultimately speaking, every mortal life on this earth is a pilgrim in exile because this world has been satanic since the fall of Adam. We're, we're fish out of water. When you get saved, you become the, you become the, the, the fish out of water because this fallen world is, is dark. And so as, as born-again believers, we function as strangers and exiles looking for a world that's, this world is not our home. Down to verse 26 and 27. Here's Moses, who could have been the next Pharaoh, honestly, if he wanted to be. If Moses had gone carnal and tried to take over the throne, who's going to stop him? He was powerful in all the education of the Egyptians. He was a man mighty in, in mind and body. And if he wanted to, to kill Pharaoh and take it for himself, there's no question that he could have done it. That was Josephus' opinion and others. All right. And yet, 
When Moses grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. When he was made aware of his heritage and knew who his people truly were, he made this spiritual decision. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. What's staggering to me is how young was Moses when he got saved? We know his own mother was his wet nurse, but then after he was weaned and after he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, did she also get saved? Did Pharaoh's daughter get saved? How did Moses get saved? Who was his evangelist? Because I don't think he was evangelized while he was while the wet nurse was still alive. <laughs> Typically, you don't evangelize the, the newborn that's still nursing, unless Moses was really sharp. All right. But somehow, his sister still has influence if she's a maid in the in the in the house there or what whatever it might have been. God saw to it that Moses got the gospel. And he knew who his people were. And he was able to look to the reward. He had spiritual eyes to see the reward that physical eyes can't see. And that's what we should be doing. Looking with our spiritual eyes constantly. Here we do not have a lasting city. Especially these days. <laughs> okay? I tell you, defund the police and how, how much longer do you have a lasting city? Pray for our nation. Pray for our, our culture. 2 Corinthians 4. I like 4.18 compared to 5.7. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Keep looking at the unseen things. Keep looking at what you can't look at. Right? Keep looking at the invisible, the unseen. Keep seeing the unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And so are you. With your eternal eyes and your eternal life, you can see the invisible, eternal things of God. And so we continue to do this. This is the perspective that lets us say, you know what? Momentary light affliction producing an eternal way to glory. Only if you're looking at it with the unseen eyes, the invisible, eternal eyes, then you can have this perspective. The outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. This is a beautiful contrast, and you, you can only have it if you're a believer and if you have the doctrinal truth to appreciate it. 4.18 is, uh, goes well with 5.7. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's exactly what it's about. While we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And in the meantime, as long as we're in this tent at home in the body and absent from the Lord, as long as we're in this tent, we're going to keep our eyes fixed where the Lord is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, or setting your focus on the things above. All these passages go so well together. I like the way Colossians and Hebrews and Second Corinthians have all been coming together. And the thinking doctrines from Philippians, just all coming together. Second Peter 3, Verse 13, you know what that says? Do I need to read it? You've probably heard this before. 2 Peter 3.13 According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me tell you something, it's your spiritual eyes that can see them already. Your physical eyes can't see them. You can get the biggest Hubble telescope out there, whatever they've got that's better than Hubble, that uh, you, know, you can see to the, the farthest reaches of the known universe... You're not going to see the new heavens and new earth with those kind of tools. Both your spiritual eyes in the scriptures, with your, with your uh, attention focused on the things above, that's where the heavenly Jerusalem's presently being built anyway. Okay? It's like when a, a big aircraft carrier is built in the, in the dry dock and then they push it into the water. You know, Think about it. The new, head, the new Jerusalem, where is it? It's not on earth yet, but it's going to come. It's going to descend out of heaven after the millennium. We can be looking for it now. And uh, so therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, you presently are even now looking for these things. Every day is a day that we're not there yet, but we could be. So we're looking for these things. 
be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. To be found by Him. What if the trumpet sounds right now? Right now. Aren't you glad that you're in fellowship, under teaching, with the family? You're where you're supposed to be? I wouldn't rather be anywhere else than uh, with, with my church family when, uh, when that trumpet sounds. Because here we go. I mean, isn't that great? I mean, I don't want to, well, I'll tell you one thing, I don't want to be carnal. I don't want to be out of fellowship. I don't want to be drunk somewhere. I don't want to be, you know, you can just imagine where I would be if I was carnal, okay? In any event, probably playing in a Scrabble tournament somewhere. Being carnal, because I'm losing. Big tournament today. I'm not going to go overtime because in 10 minutes the championship round gets started. Best of seven. All right. What am I looking at? Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. I want to be found by him in peace. Because that twinkling of an eye doesn't give you a whole lot of rebound opportunity, right? I mean, how much confession can you get done? (laughs) I mean, dear Heavenly Father takes longer than the twinkling of an eye. And then naming whatever sin or sins that got you carnal and other sins you were doing while you were carnal and uh, the little carnal joy you were taking when you were delaying your confession and all that stuff. By the time you finally get to the in Jesus' name, amen, that's too late, okay? You got caught carnal and uh, you just got raptured, which is the worst kind of First John 1, 9 I can think about because that's where he forces you to be in fellowship because he ripped you out of this body of sin and glorified your body in the the rapture of the church. And uh, you get to be in fellowship from that moment on forevermore. Seeking the city which is to come. This is my third highlight here for chapter 13. What's my fourth highlight? Keep me on track. You guys have the notes, right? You, you, you know that I've got four more to go. Our primary and continual sacrifice is the sacrifice of praise, defined as the fruit of lips that confess His name This is our sacrifice. Not dead. We're not killing anything here today. Nobody brought a goat. Thank you for that. We're not killing anything this morning. Jesus died once and for all. So now we, just as he was the sacrifice and the priest, we also are the sacrifice and the priest. We present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. And then we offer the fruit of lips the sacrifice of praise. Praise is becoming to those who walk uprightly. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him then, Hebrews 13, 15, through him then, because we have this high priest, we are in him, we are engaged in our priesthood. He entered the Holy of Holies. He passed within the veil as the forerunner. So where are we? We're the afterrunners. We're with him. In the Holy of Holies, standing before the Father, through Him then, let us continually, not just one day a year, not just on the Day of Atonement, go in there one day a year and come back out and do it again next year. Every day, all day, every day, pray without ceasing, everything give thanks, rejoice always, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It's your priesthood function from Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Our hallelujah imperative. This is us. Hallelujah is Hebrew for praise the Lord. And we get to hallelujah all the time. Praise Him for everything. Now not everything is good, but we can rejoice in everything because it's going to work together for good. We can rejoice in the Lord, even in the bad things that are happening because we know that He's using those for His good pleasure. So continually offering up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips. that, And I don't think give thanks is the best translation. I think uh, it's homologeo, it's a confession. We confess His name. The fruit of lips that confess His name. If you confess the name of Jesus Christ, that means you're a church-age believer priest. And since you confess the name of Jesus Christ, you're under the priestly duty to praise Him all day, every day. Don't wait till heaven. Do it now. Praise Him now. So we have uh, Hebrews 3.1 where Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Don't do that. How did I do that? 
All right. How did I do that? Oh, okay. That's control H. Control H is for history. Don't do control H. Control G for go. Hebrews 13. No, Hebrews 3 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, homologia. Okay? So we have a homologia, a confession. We make the good confession, homologeo, which has a broader use. It's not just rebound. It's not just confessing your sins. It's not just getting back in fellowship when you're carnal. Most of our confession should be done when we're not carnal. It should be done while we're in fellowship. We confess Jesus. We confess Him before the world. We confess Him before God. When we confess Him, He confesses us, nominating us for the, the patrological rewards. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. I love this. Try to emphasize this when we're in chapter 3. Try to emphasize it again in chapter 10. This is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not the Belgic Confession. It's not the whatever other confession you've been exposed to in the past. Okay? There's a lot of confessions over the years. Now, ours is the confession of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ himself as our high priest. No, don't do that. Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The whole book of Hebrews, if you missed it, and everybody that's terrified that Hebrews is scaring them about losing their salvation? Ridiculous. You're scared of the wrong thing. Hebrews is scaring us about blowing it in our confession. That is the priestly access that we have to God the Father by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is no longer, when we go carnal, when we go into apostasy, apostasy is not throwing away eternal life. Apostasy is throwing away our priestly access to God the Father. And we stop being His house. Now we're still saved and we're going to go to heaven when we die. Even if you die in carnality, even if you die out of fellowship, even if you die in, in the worst apostasy ever, even if you die the sin and the death after 30 years of apostasy, you still have eternal security and you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a part of the body and bride of, of the church age. But you threw away the confession, the priesthood that we have in Christ. That's the book of Hebrews. Wow, I should have said that earlier. Wait for 153 classes to get something like that out there. So let us hold fast our confession. And we do. We need to hold fast. If we don't hold fast, it'll slip away. If we're not careful, then the things of this world will slip in and we'll get distracted by uh, career and money and politics and current events and news and, and whatever else. We start chasing Scrabble tournaments and trying to climb the ranks. We start getting consumed with earthly achievements. And we realize, I haven't even thought about my priesthood in the last week, month, year, decade, what have you. No, we've got to hold fast our confession. That is, stay in fellowship and stay engaged in your priestly ministry in Christ. Hebrews 10.23 Notice we have confidence to enter the veil. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He has inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. See, the threat isn't losing your salvation. The threat is getting kicked out of the holy of holies. That we stop operating as believer priests in the church age. Because every time you go carnal, you don't stay in the holy holies. You get booted out first thing. Let us draw near with our hearts, sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So if you're carnal, confess your sins, be restored to fellowship, you're cleansed, and you're right back in the holy of holies again. As easy as that, instantaneous spirituality. 
okay? Filling is a process, but spirituality is instantaneous. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The Bible isn't telling us keep yourself saved. The Bible is telling us keep yourself in fellowship, holding fast the confession so that you can function in the priesthood in the Holy of Holies. I don't know about you, I, I just, to me, a carnal believer is worse than an unbeliever. Just as the effects of how damaging it is to the church, how uh, the, the kind of, um, I mean, it could just tear apart a congregation. All right. And while we are holding fast to our confession, we can consider, I think I made that a separate point. I did not make that a separate intended to but that's all right how did i leave hebrews 10 25 out of my seven point oh i know why because it was seven points i thought i don't have time for eight but i gotta put hebrews 10 25 in there not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the rapture drawing near every day that we're not raptured means we're one day closer and every day that we're not raptured, we have to keep our attention fixed on the things above. That is, that trumpet can sound and we could be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. The episunagoge of Hebrews 10.25, where it's translated, are assembling together. That's so much bigger, so much more. It's, it's, this, this is a popular text because it preaches, Okay. It's a popular text with every pastor teacher in the history of the church age who wants to tell his flock, quit skipping church. So we got 2,000 years of church age pastors preaching to their flocks, quit skipping church. And this is the go-to verse. And I believe they're missing the greater glory because there's other passages that say don't skip church. They're missing the greater glory of the episunagoge. The episynagogue that's only used twice in the New Testament. Second Thessalonians, where it is the rapture of the church, and here, where I believe it is also the rapture of the church. Not neglecting, not forsaking the epi, our episynagogue, as is the habit of some. Not forsaking rapture doctrine, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day. If that's not rapture, by the way, nothing in this chapter tells us what that day is at the end of the verse. There is no context for the day other than the episynagogue of verse 25. All right, so it's not in the notes. Squeeze it in as point 4A. 1 Timothy 6, verses 12 and 13. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. This is Paul to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. There's Jesus making confession. You don't think he was carnal, do you? Hamalagat was used for a whole lot more than just 1 John 1 9. Are you convinced yet? And Timothy made the good confession. It's when, when, when a man stands for ordination, he's making the good confession in his ministry pursuits. And this is what Timothy did. And this is what Jesus did. Testified before Pontius Pilate, then he went to the cross. Jesus being the apostle and high priest of our confession. 1 John 2, 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Sometimes this gets taught as a salvation issue. But like we've been seeing throughout all of Hebrews, confessing and denying that uh, when you deny the Son, you're forsaking your priesthood, you're forsaking your access, you're forsaking your confession you found something better to confess? <laughs> Please. I desire nothing else but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. No, confess the Son. 
And he'll confess you before the Father, by the way. There's a reward for that, for maintaining your confession. Something else we have, the fruit of lips, the praise sacrifice. We also have the good deed sacrifice. Doing good as a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. Also, it happens to benefit others. <laughs> Icing on the cake, fringe benefit, side effect. The primary thing is I'm doing good so that I can please God. That's verse 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God has pleased. So we had already the primary sacrifice of praise. That's lips fruit as those who confess Christ. But then we also have doing good. Doing good. Like standing outside Linty's window and singing happy birthday. Okay? I don't even know what key we were in. I suspect we were in several different keys. Okay? But as a sweet-smelling savor before God the Father, doing good and sharing. And, of course, you know, an unbeliever can stand outside a window and sing, but believers in fellowship for the glory of Jesus Christ are bearing fruit, are functioning in the priestly role. Likewise, sharing, which we see under point six, the fellowship sharing, which should have put on the same slide. But yes, it's a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. It also happens to benefit others. Like verses 1 and 2, the love of the brethren, the hospitality to strangers. Those are sacrifices. Mark 14, 7. The poor you will have with you always. Isn't this interesting? Jesus said here, you will always have the poor with you. So a human good government program that's going to stamp out poverty, how successful do you think it's going to be? Now, I believe Jesus prophesied that uh, the great society isn't, okay? That the war on poverty is doomed. The poor you have with you always. And whenever you want a wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. And the disciples were all upset because this woman was wasting money. They thought, wasting money anointing Jesus. And they're still living in denial. He's getting ready for the cross. And they're, you know, they got a bag over their head or something like, oh, it's not going to happen. Think about that. What are the opportunities? Galatians 6.10. As you have opportunity, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that means we prioritize our benevolence. That means we target our ministries. That means that, um, you know, we're judicious in, uh, in uh, you, you can't help everybody. So where do you start? And, uh, and how do you serve the Lord in, in, the oppor- in the opportunities he provides while we have opportunity? Is this an open door? Let's go through. Let us do good to all people. Second Thessalonians uh, 3.13 But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. This is where um, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord, work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread. You want to be, you want to be working, you want to be productive, you want to be saving, you want to have an abundance. The opportunity is then there to share, to bless with others. And don't grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction, don't take special note of that person. Do not associate with them so that he would be put to shame. Don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's not a sin to be rich. If God has provided an abundance, enjoy it. And if God has provided less than an abundance, enjoy it. 
And if God has provided a scarcity whereby um, somebody else's abundance will be sufficient for your needs, enjoy it. Each phase God the Father is using for His good pleasure. And this is why He's doing it. Richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Here's the secret to laying up treasure in heaven. Be generous on earth. So doing good is a well-pleasing sacrifice, as is fellowship sharing, a priestly sacrifice. And this goes far beyond the financial. This includes the, the doctrinal and the encouraging and, and ministry pursuits and everything else that we hold in common. The fellowship sharing that we do. That's why I love it when I miss the fact we don't have potlucks. We need to have another potluck. I'll even, if I have to, I'll go to jail. Let's just have a potluck. We, we scheduled one. I know I'm on YouTube now. So November 15th is when we've scheduled and we're praying that the city has released some restrictions by then. So we could fellowship share. We could sit around a table. We can talk doctrine. That's what fellowship is, not talking politics or sports or earthly things. Fellowship in doctrine. Six and seven. I'm running out of time. Romans 12, 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Those are priestly functions, not just good ideas. Romans 15, 24 through 29. When I go to Spain, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. He's going to fellowship with the believers in Rome and then they're going to help him get to Spain. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution. This is a fellowship sharing contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do so or indebted to them. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in material things. You know, the Jewish people did give us the Christ. We ought to maybe have some Jewish ministry, <laughs> okay? You think some Jewish evangelism would be a good idea? I'm glad that our president is working towards uh, the peace of Jerusalem and forging agreements like he did with uh, uh, the Arab Emirates. And, and uh, that's a lot better than sending plane loads of cash to the Iranians that want to nuke them. Let's support the Jewish people. How about that? And Genesis 12 means we get blessed. 2 Corinthians 8. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. In great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and the deep poverty. They were so poor, it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. This is grace in action. It's marvelous fellowship. 2 Corinthians 9, 12-14. The ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because the churches that gave were, giving, were thankful for the giving, the churches that received were thankful for the receiving, and the thanksgivings were multiplied. This proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your fellowship, your contribution to them and to all. And they yearn for you. I get humbled when these pastors in Ghana and, and uh, Cameroon and all these places, and they said they're praying for us while they're hiding in the jungle because they're getting shot at. Finally, point seven having prepared the mediator, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and he was prepared by his earthly life. The Father now prepares ministers of the new covenant. This is the short version of the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator. 
We are the ministers, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the servants, the deacons, because we're in Christ. The Father equipped him, the Father equips us. It says here, um, equipping you to do every good work. Verse 20, the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Father equipped Jesus to be the mediator. He's equipping us to be the ministers. Our whole life is preparation for what we're going to do in the next, what we're going to do in Christ in the millennial kingdom and in the fullness of time as ministers of the new covenant. A new covenant that has not yet been put into effect, not until the millennium. All right, well, I'm out of time, but you have the bulletin, you have the points, and you can go back and and review uh, these verses. It wasn't that long ago, anyway, that we were looking at verses 20 and 21. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness and the blessing we have to study the book of Hebrews. And I pray that we not be fearful of the wrong thing, but that we be very fearful of the right thing. Very fearful how easy it is for us to walk away from our priesthood and to throw away our confidence, which has a great reward. So, Father, keep us within the veil. Keep us in fellowship, standing before your glory. Keep us holding fast to our confession. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.